Remember, we've been preaching through the Sermon on the Mount, and this sermon series is called Kingdom Life in a Fallen World. Jesus went up on a mountain and he preached a sermon, basically telling us how we are supposed to live this Christian life in the world that we have today. And so we've been going through this, and we're going through it sequentially. And I'm coming to one of the most difficult passages in Scripture. And it's a challenging passage, and it is very interesting that it falls on Mother's Day. And I could have avoided it, I could have moved on to something else, but I just felt like this is a great passage to preach on. And so I move forward with fear and trepidation, uh, but nonetheless I move forward. So hear these words of the Lord as Jesus is speaking to his disciples. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you, everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. The word of the Lord. Well, I want to introduce you to a new sport that I just discovered. Have you ever heard of the sport of wife carrying? Anyone? Show the slide. There is a competition called the wife carrying race, which I will advance right here, which started in Finland, and they hold competitions around the world. In fact, this is the couple that won in Maine the North American wife carrying championship, which happens every October. It, it, uh, the, the competition uh, originated in Finland. Some think, those crazy Finns, that it, it was from, uh, you know, pillaging Finns who would go to a new uh, village and carry off the women. And, and that's how wife uh, carrying began. But there's a science to wife carrying. Apparently there are different types of carries. There's the piggyback carry. We need to dance here. We, yeah, no, no, no. <laughs> you actually need to demonstrate. I'm gonna go there's the fireman's carry. We get all that. And then there's the Estonian-style carry, in which the wife hangs over backwards and wraps her legs around his neck and around his waist so his arms are free and he can run faster. Apparently, this is the carry du jour upon which one wins. You know, there's actually an international wife carrying competition rules committee. And here are some of the rules. The official distance is 253.5 meters. Don't forget the point five. Any course, you have two dry obstacles, one water obstacle. The minimum weight of the wife must be 108 pounds. If she is not light enough, they actually give her sacks of flour to make sure that she meets minimum weight. Uh, weight. All participants must enjoy themselves. And if you win in your prospective country, you can go to the world championships in Finland, where the winner is awarded a prize of cases of beer equivalent to the wife's weight. <laughs> Come on. So I think we are going to field a couple of church tool in our teams, and we're going up to Maine in October. You can go ahead and advance that slide, or no one's going to look at me for the rest of the summer. You know, we have to look, the reason I love this sport is because this sport is just like marriage when you think about it. You got a husband and a wife. You got to get from point A to point B. There's all sorts of obstacles. You're not sure how you're going to get there, but there's only one rule. You got to get there together. And so marriage is 
confusion and creativity of trying to find a way to surmount the obstacles that come in front of you to make it to the finish line. You know, marriage is one of the greatest opportunities for joy and for comfort. The opportunity to know someone deeply and intimately and to be known. It's a source of great joy. But you know, marriage as well is one of the greatest sources of sorrow and pain. Isn't that fitting that one thing that could be the greatest joy is also the greatest pain? Many of us have experienced scars and suffering at the hands of divorce. You know, as a pastor, I get to marry people and I get the best seat in the house as I stand in front of these two people looking at each other with love and eternity in their hearts. And so, of course, it would be so great to fall from such a height to the point where they wouldn't want to be in together anymore. John Piper, when talking about divorce, made this quote. The mere mention of the word carries a huge weight of sorrow and loss and tragedy and disappointment and anger and regret and guilt. Few things are more painful than divorce. It cuts to the depths of personhood unlike any other relational gash. It's emotionally more heart-wrenching than the death of a spouse. Death is usually a clean pain. Divorce is usually unclean pain. In other words, the enormous loss of a spouse and death is compounded in divorce by the ugliness of sin and the moral outrage at being so wrong. You may know of this pain, not theoretically, but existentially. Maybe having gone through a divorce yourself. Maybe you were the child of divorced parents and you experienced that pain and suffering and still struggle with the effects of this particular difficulty in your life. And so we have to ask the question, where do we get answers about marriage, about how to make it from one point to the other? Well, we can't go to the world for answers because the world's answer is very simply to minimize it. There are no consequences to this issue of marriage. In fact, if you go onto Google right now and type in divorce, you'll find no shortage of attorneys who for $400 can take care of that issue for you. Who's Cameron Diaz, the 38-year-old actress who said, marriage is a dying institution. I think we have to make our own rules, she explained. I don't think we should live our lives in relationships based on old traditions that don't suit our world any longer. The result of this thinking of going to the world is that 50% or more of marriages are ending in divorce these days. Well, we could minimize marriage, but the reality is this, truth can be denied, but it can't be avoided. No, we can't diminish marriage, we can't eliminate it, but we can try to understand it. If you are married, you must ask the question, how can we make sure that our marriage ends in joy rather than pain and suffering? And in this passage that Jesus gives us, he teaches us a truth that we can all hold on to. That Jesus has enough faithfulness for you, that you can be faithful to each other. So the goal of this sermon is to unpack that concept, that Jesus has enough faithfulness for you, that you can be faithful to each other. I want to talk about three things. Number one, that marriage is first and foremost the doing of God. It's more than a decision, it's a destiny. Marriage is the doing of God. Second, marriage is the display of God. Marriage is more than just about you and me. It's about something that God is doing and wants to do. And then finally, marriage is the desire of God. That you can be faithful because God wants you to succeed. So let's look into these three things. Number one, marriage is the doing of God. 
Jesus starts off in Matthew 5, 31 by saying, It was also said, Whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. And remember, Jesus has been going through this passage and saying, You have heard it said. He's not referring to the scriptures there, because whenever Jesus refers to the scriptures, he always says, It is written. Rather, he is referring to the teaching of the Pharisees. And the Pharisees were basing their teaching on divorce. Remember, the Pharisees and the religious leaders, they were the ones that explained the law to the people. And the Pharisees took their counsel from a specific passage and made their teaching out of it. Deuteronomy 24.1, which says, If a man marries a woman who becomes displeasing to him because he finds something indecent about her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce, gives it to her, and sends her from his house, and after it, and her second husband dislikes her, she gets married, and writes her a certificate of divorce, gives it to her, and sends her from his house. Or if he dies, then her first husband, who has divorced her, is not allowed to marry her again. This would be unacceptable in the eyes of the Lord. So the Pharisees were taking this teaching, and they were making it the central uh, 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 pillar of marriage. The only real question of the Pharisees was this. What is it that exactly means about finding something indecent about her? It clearly was not adultery, because if it was adultery, you would be stoned. So it's something indecent. The competing rabbinical school said this. The school of Hillel said that he may divorce her even if she spoiled a dish for him. And Rabbi Akiba said that he may divorce her even if he found another fairer than she. And so when the Pharisees heard Jesus with this particular teaching, we see later on in Matthew, they come up to test Jesus. And they said to Jesus, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? And this was Jesus' response. Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female, and said, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh? So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. They said to him, Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and send her away? He said, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. See, the Pharisees were coming to Jesus and they were looking for an inconsistency in his teaching. An inconsistency between him and what Moses said in the Old Testament. But the reality is the inconsistency was not with Jesus. It was with the Pharisees. Because Moses never commanded that a man divorce his wife. You notice how they said that? That never was in Deuteronomy 24.1. In fact, this statute given by Moses was actually given to protect women at the time. See, before this law was given by Moses, a man would divorce a woman, turn her out of the home for any reason at any time. And she would be in great trouble because she had no proof that she had been turned out of the home and no one would marry her. And so a structure was at least put into place that if you were going to claim something indecent about her, it had to be in the presence of two witnesses. And if you were going to give her a certificate of divorce, it needed to be witnessed by two people. Oh, and by the way, if you gave this certificate of divorce, you could never marry her again. Or you couldn't hold it over her head and then uh, bring her back. And so it was meant to be for life. But Jesus is saying here 
that this Mosaic law was a concession. See, the, the Pharisees are trying to reduce marriage to a human decision, a contract. But Jesus referred not to a contract. He referred to creation. God joined these two people together. It was God's doing. You know, it's kind of the same with us, isn't it? We want to reduce marriage to a human decision. I saw her. She saw me. We started dating. We fell in love. At some point, I made the decision to marry her, and here we are now. And if we made the decision, then we can also make the decision to stop it. What God is saying here is that this was not your doing. It's not merely a human decision. Rather, it was God's decision. Think about the first couple, Adam and Eve, which I read about a little while ago. Adam was lonely. And so what did God do? He saw that Adam had a need, and so he created Eve out of the rib, out of the side of Adam. In a sense, he literally raised her up. He fathered her, in a sense. And then he brought her to Adam. You know, the first father to give away a bride wasn't a human. It was God himself who brought the bride to the husband. He walked her down the aisle. But God was not only the father, he was also the minister. For he joined them together and he pronounced them one flesh. This marriage wasn't based on the basis of a contract. It was based on the basis of God's word. God is the one who did it. And if God did it for Adam and Eve, why would you think he would do it any different for you and me? See, you may think that your marriage is your doing, but it's God's. You may think that your partner is God's choice, is your choice, but it was God's choice from you, from the beginning. Some people have come to me for counseling and they say, how do I know if this is the person that I am supposed to marry? I say, that's really easy. Marry her. How do I know that Leon's the one for me? I married her. And what God has joined together, let no man put asunder. And so if you want to see the register of marriage, you don't need to go to the courthouse. You need to go to heaven itself. Because we have become one flesh. Where my name is up in heaven, there's always an asterisk by it. Leon is related to it because God has joined us together until death. We vastly underestimate the bond of marriage because we minimize its origin. I heard the story in the Seattle Times about an old couple. J.D. Conjure, who told everyone he couldn't live without his wife, Opal. He took care of her as her dementia deepened, and she slowly faded. But even during her last difficult year, they relied on each other. Frail as she was, she translated the world for him, making up for his failing eyes and ears. When Opal Conger died at age 97 on the morning of January 13th, they'd been husband and wife for 81 years. Partners in a marriage so enduring that they were the subjects of a Sacramento Bee story a year ago. While it's left to younger, dreamier generations to describe long-married couples as the loves of each other's lives, the Conger's devotion was clearly an unbreakable bond. And so J.D. followed Opal into death just after dawn, not 48 hours after she died. He was 101, and he was true to his word. He was not going to be here without her. They were so attached to each other, said their daughter, they just kept each other going. One of the things J.D. said when she, uh, she passed was, how can I go on without her? Researchers actually have a name for the increased probability of death among grieving mates. 
within weeks or months of the spouse's passing. It's called the widowhood effect. Among elderly couples, according to Harvard University, men are 22% more likely to die shortly after the death of a spouse and 17% for women. It's almost as if they're bonded so tightly to one another that they end up following each other, even to the other side. My question for you is this, what is the basis of your marriage? A human decision to go ahead and give it a shot? What's the strength of your marriage? Is it a paper in a courthouse, a ring on your finger, the strength of, the will, of your will, or is it God himself? See, maybe right now your marriage is difficult and you're wondering, maybe I should just quit. But we must see that God planned your marriage. He orchestrated it. He ratified it and he blessed it. And so when your bonds feel weak, remember that it is God who has joined you together. When you don't feel the love anymore, remember that your marriage is heavenly, not earthly. When you're not sure that she is the one, that maybe you made a mistake and you want to throw in the towel, Remember that it's His doing. God has joined you together. And what God has joined together, we must not put asunder. Jesus has enough faithfulness for you that you can be faithful to each other. For marriage is God's doing. This moves me into my second point, that marriage is not only God's doing, but it's for the display of God. We have to move forward in this passage because if this is true, if everything you're sharing is true, Carlos, then there has to be deep consequences for the ending of this marriage. And so Jesus gives this difficult teaching in verse 32. Whoever divorces his spouse causes the other person, let him give her, oh, but I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Now we need to break down and talk about the what of what he's saying. And then we need to understand the why that's behind it. Okay, the what is what he's saying here is that whoever divorces his wife, now keep in mind, back in Jewish culture, it was the husband who could divorce the wife. But in Greek culture, either could divorce. And in fact, in our culture, of course, either can divorce right now as well. He's saying whoever divorces his wife, whoever says, I'm out, I don't want to be married to you anymore. That's what he's talking about in this particular instance, except for sexual immorality. Now some of you may say, well wait a second, this is a very short teaching, what about uh, spousal abuse? What about some of the other things that we're dealing with right here? And to be true, there is some more difficult teaching on this. I would refer you to 1 Corinthians 7, which deals with some abandonment issues. But I'm trying to communicate the spirit of what Jesus is trying to say here, which is in the instance where someone says, I'm out, I don't want to be married to you anymore, there is a consequence. And that consequence is if that person marries again, that it is considered uh, committing adultery. Now, a couple things are very critical here. The first is, you may ask the question, does God recognize this second marriage? The answer is yes. Look at the bottom part. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. God recognizes the marriage. God ratifies the marriage. But God does not bless that initial union because it is not what God had planned. Are you saying that you cannot honor someone in your second marriage? I'm not saying that at all. You can please and honor God in your second marriage as you did in your first. But it begins with pain. 
The second question that some people have asked me is said, well, wait a second, is this, are you saying that the entire second marriage is adulterous? No, that's not what the scriptures say. The Greek here is pretty clear in terms of the tense they're using that this is a action at this time, not an ongoing state. And so it begins in difficulty, but it moves on. And there's an opportunity to move forward because what God has joined together, let no man put asunder. So we have to understand that teaching, but it does say here as well that there is a ground in which a hurt party has a right to leave. It says here that I say to you, anyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality. Now what is he talking about? What does sexual immorality mean? This word in the Greek, porneia, or where we get the word pornography. It basically meant a host of things at that time, but essentially sexual intercourse outside of the marriage bond. So that covered a wide range of things, prostitution, incest, homosexuality, a wide uh, stage of things. So that's the what, now we need to understand why. Why does God put such a heavy levy on breaking up a marriage? And why does God allow someone to be free from a marriage under these grounds of sexual immorality? See, we have to understand what marriage is to understand why these commands are so strong. You can sum up the word marriage in one word, commitment. Marriage equals commitment, commitment equals marriage. Think about the vows that you gave if you were married and married before when you stood up in front of a pastor and you said those words in sickness and in health, for richer, for poorer, for all these things until death do us part. Basically, the marriage vows are simply this, I'm in. Whatever's ahead, I don't know what it is. But I'm in. In fact, if we knew what was ahead, we probably wouldn't say it, would we? But I'm in. This word commitment is symbolizing what we call covenant. It's the basis for marriage. You see, you get married at the altar. You don't get married at the bed. And so we can only understand the true meaning of sex in the proper context of marriage. Sex is a physical manifestation of a spiritual reality. What is ratified in the covenant of marriage is symbolized in the act of sex. Because in sex we see this, I'm for you, you're for me, and there's no one else. It's a complete giving over of one person to the other. Ratified in marriage, symbolized in sex. And the world doesn't get this. The world doesn't get it. Have you noticed when you're walking through the magazine aisle and the magazines are fascinated with technique? How can technique, here's more technique, more ways to do whatever. Now, first of all, it ain't that complicated, okay? It's not that complicated. So what's the deal? The reality is this, that the world is trying to find fulfillment in the symbol. They want the symbol divorced from the commitment. And it just doesn't work that way. Sex is part and parcel with commitment. It's lifelong. So why all this is so important to God is simply this. Marriage is a picture of God's commitment to us. Marriage is God on display. His commitment as a husband to the wife, Christ to his church. Marriage is a billboard in which God proclaims, look how committed I am to you. 
That the God of the universe brought you to himself. He transformed you. He recreated you. He joined you in Christ. And he paid the dowry on the cross. See, marriage is bigger than ourselves, friends. It's for the display of the glory of God. And what he has done is mirrored in what we have done. Marriage is not about my needs and wants alone. It's about God's glory. And so we are to put Christ at the center of our marriage. See, now we can see why God condemns divorce. Because divorce for any other reason other than sexual immorality is a repudiation of Christ's faithfulness. Leaving one's spouse, it's utterly anathema to God. And so God calls it what it is, adultery. We can see why Jesus allows for this one opportunity in order to be able to leave for sexual immorality because the person has broken the bond. Sex is the symptom, but behind the symptom is unfaithfulness. It fractures the relationship, damages it, sometimes irreparably. I remember when I was 16 years old, I got a car, a little Subaru car. I thought it was the coolest thing. This was a car, I don't remember if you remember getting your first car, but a car symbolized freedom. You could go wherever you want, do whatever you did. You could see whole new things that you've never seen before. And to a 16-year-old, man, this was great. My parents were very wise, though. They sat me down and they said, listen, this car has the opportunity to do great things in your life, but it also has the opportunity to create great havoc because you're able to take a one-and-a-half-ton vehicle and drive it at 90 miles an hour. You can kill someone with it. So treat it not as a toy, but as a treasure. And so I did, initially. But as time goes on, we get busy, don't we? And we come to take for granted that which we once treated as special. There was one time when I was going around a corner, driving way faster than I should have, on a slippery ground, and I didn't take the corner quite right, and I hit the brakes, and I slid right into the curb and just buckled the whole front of the car and took the wheel right underneath the chassis. See, the truth of the matter was I didn't treasure the thing that I had. And the reason I didn't treasure it was I got used to it. I forgot what it could do, and I ended up hurting it. We were able to fix it, but not without great cost. See, marriage is bigger than us. It's a display of God's faithfulness. It's about Him more than it's about us. And so I need to ask you, what's at the center of your marriage if you are married? Is it my needs and wants, or is it God's glory? To have my needs fulfilled or to lay down my life for my spouse? Everything in your marriage and mine if you're married is intended to display God's love for me. And so we must treasure the gift that God has given us. Do you treasure it? Marriage is a beautiful and strong bond, but it's not indestructible. When you think about it, what's the most precious thing you have, aside from your faith in Christ? What promise is going to stay with you until death do us part? It's not your job. It's not your health, necessarily. It's not your friends. It's not even your family. But marriage is until death do us part. So we must treasure what's infinitely valuable. We must treasure it with priority. Our spouse must be in a different class than anyone else. God, our spouse, everybody else. 
I do this with our kids all the time. Kids want all of your time. They want all of mom's and all of dad's time. Sometimes we just send them up. And we say, I need to be with your spouse. If I'm going to be a good parent to you, I need to get to know Leela. I need to have a strong relationship with her. We need to treasure it with priority. We need to treasure it with time. Time to polish the diamond. Time to have dinner together. Time to talk together. Time to be together. Finally, we need to treasure it with boundaries. I don't know if you've heard this phrase before. I have a wife and then I have a work wife. Or I have a work husband. It's a strange phenomenon. I'm not a fan of it. That there's someone at the office that kind of fills some of those roles for me when I'm not at home. There's nobody that can fill that particular role for you if you're married than your spouse. And so you must protect it. No one ever says, you know what, I think I'm going to wake up today and I think I'm going to have an affair. It starts slowly when we're not treasuring our marriage. Marriage is God's design. And Jesus has enough faithfulness for you that you can be faithful to each other. This leads me to my final point, that marriage is not only the doing of God, it's not only for the display of God, but it's the desire of God. See, many of us live on that other side of divorce, and we live with regret. Hey, I wish I could have known this back then. What am I supposed to do now? Is there grace for me in my place of pain? You know, maybe you were betrayed by a spouse who was unfaithful to you. Maybe you experienced divorce as a child, and you, it was not your fault, and you've had to grow up and live with the scars, and frankly, you're mad. You blame your spouse, you blame your parents, and most of all, you blame God. Why did you let this happen? But you know the truth is Jesus knows what it's like to be betrayed. Jesus had the feet of the ones he washed, Judas, to give him up to be killed. His very friends, when he needed him, when the Roman soldiers came, they all deserted him. And the very people that he created hung him on a cross. Jesus knows what it's like to be alone. But how was Jesus able to live in the midst of all that loneliness? Jesus trusted in his heavenly Father. Jesus said, but a time is coming and has now come when you will be scattered, each to his own home. You will leave me all alone, yet I am not alone, for my Father is always with me. Jesus entrusted himself to the Father. See, there's one bond that will always stand. Only one bond that's stronger than marriage. See, marriage is till death do us part, but the bond between God and his people is forever. God's love goes beyond death. And God is faithful to you, even when everyone else is faithless. God is enough. Whether you've gone through divorce and felt the pain, whether you've never been married and you're wondering the question, God, what do you have for me? God says, I am enough for you. Because my bond with you, in my death, will give you life. Maybe you're on the other side. You weren't the one who was hurt. You weren't the one who was betrayed. You are the betrayer. You screwed up your marriage. You were unfaithful. You blew it. You quit. And you live with regret. Is there grace enough for me, Carlos? Yes. Because even if you were faithless, Jesus is faithful. 
The marriage bond is breakable, but God's love for you and me is unbreakable. Because my marriage to God in Jesus Christ was not my decision. It was God's decision for you and for me. God found you. God chose you. God ransomed you. He gave you the grace to trust in Him. You didn't make that decision for God. He made that decision for you. You responded to what God had done for you. And so you, God will never leave you. You may break your vows to God, but God will never break His vows to you. And so you can live in the grace of freedom and forgiveness. The scriptures say, if you, O Lord, kept a record of sins, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness. Therefore you are feared. So rest in His love. Don't look back. Look up. Move ahead in faithfulness to Him. Are you remarried? Please the Lord in the marriage that you have. Are you having difficulties in your marriage currently? Hold on to Christ who held on to you. He can bond you together. And if you're not married yet, wait on the Lord. His plan for you is perfect. And He is enough for you. I saw a movie last night. It's called The Vow. I don't know if anyone's seen it. Rachel McAdams and Channing Tatum. I think it was number one at the box office this weekend. It's a very interesting story about a couple and the, uh, the wife, uh, they're married, newly married, the wife ends up in a car accident, wakes up and she can't remember her husband. And it's the pain and suffering going through that. It's actually based on a true story. But in classic Hollywood fashion, they erased the most important thing of the story, which was the Christian beliefs of the two, cup, of the two people, Kim and Cricket Carpenter, who wrote the book, The Vow. And the book draws heavily on the couple's Christian beliefs and the power of God to heal and shepherd their marriage through difficult times. The book tells the story of Kim, Kim is actually the man, and Cricket, the woman who met and fell in love over a long-distance phone call in 1992. He was actually buying a baseball jacket for her. They bonded over their Christian faith. They wrote long letters to one another. They shared in their faith, and they were married a very short time later. Just 10 weeks into their marriage, the couple survived a terrible car wreck that left Cricket in a coma with severe head trauma. Upon waking, Cricket experienced amnesia for getting the last 18 months of her life. And when she awoke from a coma, she had no memory of her husband. It was a sickening feeling. I remember walking out of the room and I slid down the wall. I couldn't believe it, said Kim. It was as if never existed. Their entire life was erased in a flash. Any feelings and memories I had for my husband were wiped out, said Cricket. Kim told her, I'd tell her I loved her and there was just nothing coming back. People have asked, many people would have never blamed you if you had walked away. Why did you stay? He said, I made a vow to God that until death do us part. And the Lord is in the middle of it all in terms of our relationship and is the biggest part of our relationship. I never stopped loving her. I made a vow until death do us part. And when asked Cricket what is the one thing she'd want to share about everyone in your relationship, she said you have to keep persevering and have endurance and keep going. And things will get better. For myself, I relied on the Lord's strength and the Lord is the one that got me through. But we just kept on going ahead and now we have a pot of gold at the end of our rainbow and that's the birth of our two children. 
She never regained her memories. She simply fell in love again based on the vow. How can we love one another when we hurt each other? How can we love when we're so unlovable? When so much has passed between us, we trust in Jesus Christ, who broke his bond with the Heavenly Father, so we wouldn't break our bond with each other. If Jesus was willing to go to such lengths, can we not do the same? So when we look to him, remember his faithfulness. When we're not willing to budge, remember him who came from heaven to earth. When you can't see eye to eye with your spouse, you can always meet them at the cross. For Jesus is reconciled. He is restored. Jesus has enough commitment for you that you can be committed to each other. And Jesus has enough faithfulness for you that you can be committed to each other as well. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for marriage and the sign that it is of your unfailing love for us. But Lord, we are flawed. We fail and we mess up. We take comfort in the fact that you never fail. Your vows always stand. And it's not until death do us part. It's beyond death. It's for eternity. And so I pray for everyone in this room. We're all at different places. Some in joy, some in sorrow. With the whole issue of marriage, Lord. That we would remember and rejoice in the fact that your love is enough. And your graciousness to us can get us through anything. For you will never leave us, Lord, for all of this we pray in Christ's name. Amen.